Boulevard. Welcome. Glad you're here. Those of you online, really glad to have you. Um, I guess you can tell that we put vitamins in the uh, communion juice, which is why David Hunsaker did such a good job last Sunday. <laughs> he's really, it's really been cool to watch. Um, I mean, David's a, he's, David scores high in every category, not just as a preacher. Uh, but it's been cool to hear a young man's perspective. It's like dawned on me, okay, I guess I'm not young anymore because he brings all this stuff that I haven't thought about in some years. So I'm just proud of him, proud to belong to North Boulevard. And I want to help you um, focus on that which I know you really want, and that is love. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to answer this question for me. Just speak out. If you're at home, you can speak out at home. Are you your brother's keeper? So the answer is yes, I'll help you out there. This is the easy part. It gets a little trickier in the sermon. Are you your brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Come on, like I got all day. What else do I have to do? I'm a preacher. So um, that's what we want to answer. The question, am I my brother's keeper? I'm going to start with a story, true story, and uh, a really prosaic text out of a, 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 an author who's now deceased. So in the year 1803... Thomas Jefferson, for 35 cents an acre, purchased 530 million acres, the Louisiana Purchase, doubling the size of the United States of America. In order to find out what it is he had just bought, Jefferson recruited two captains. You know their names, William Clark and um, Meriwether Lewis. They and about four dozen other men set out in a keelboat to travel the 2,430 miles of the Missouri River. They eventually would travel as much as 8,000 miles and be gone for two and a half years. In fact, remember that when the Apollo missions went to the moon, they had access to Houston. They could still talk to people here on earth. When Lewis and Clark and their expedition went up the Missouri River, they lost contact. And for more than two years, people just assumed they were dead. They went to scout out the property, these two. And as they took these individuals with them, you can't but help, think, uh, you can't help but think, these guys must have become closer than brothers. I mean, they realized that everything they did influenced one another and that if they were going to survive this mission, this great mission, because to them it was surely the grandest adventure they would ever experience, they were going to have to stand together. So, in his book, Stephen Ambrose, Undaunted Courage, he describes how close these men became to one another. I want to read just a quick clip from that because it's such good writing. The men of the expedition were linked together by uncommon experiences and by the certain knowledge that they were making history. They were all in this together. Every man was dependent on all the others and they on him. Together under the leadership of the captains, they became a family. They could recognize one another at night by a cough or a gesture. 
They knew one another's skills and weaknesses and habits and background. Who liked salt? Who preferred liver? Who shot true? Who got the cooking fires going the quickest? Where they came from? What their parents were like? What dreams they had? Lewis and Clark committed to building a team because they knew that together they would triumph or together they would die. They understood that they were their brother's keepers. That's like a really great model. I was supposed to be flashing through these images while I did that. It's really a great model for the church that we really are on the grand mission of God. Now, not only do we have the ordinary stuff of life that we deal with, but we actually have the extraordinary stuff of God that we're traveling a road together and we're traveling a road for the purpose of making disciples of all nations. And here's the truth. If we aren't one another's keeper, if we're not really a family, it's never going to be possible to do what God has called us to do. And for us to become a family is for us to understand that we made a covenant with each other, that we're all in this together. God doesn't strike, listen, God doesn't strike individual contracts within, with people. Like he, you and God don't have your private contract. God struck a covenant with the church, with all of us together. And by striking that covenant, God invites all of us to work together, to love one another, support one another, so that we should know who prefers meat and who prefers fish, who's quickest to start a fire, where you come from and what your parents were like and what your aspirations are. We're the ones who ought to know those things about each other. But there's a problem in a church of 3,000 people. We're going to address the problem in a minute, but before we do, I just want to make sure that we understand at the end of the day, if we don't love one another, nothing else matters. I want to make sure you understand, disciple making is only done because we love people. If you're not doing it because you love people, you're wasting your time and you're hurting them too. And so when Paul talks about the book of Deuteronomy, he sums it up in one word, Galatians 5 and verse 14. Paul is talking about, in that text, he's saying, don't, don't attack each other, don't be vicious with each other, don't mistreat each other. And he sums it up. He says, the summary of the law, the fulfillment of the law is found in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That means Deuteronomy is all about loving one another. That's what the book is about. I want to make sure that you understand that every commandment in the book of Deuteronomy is a commandment to love. Every commandment is. So if you read Deuteronomy and you don't come away loving, you didn't read it right. And I also want to make sure you don't mishear this text, Galatians 5.14, because there's a little temptation for us here in the 21st century in North America. We have our problems. Other generations have had theirs. But one of our problems is this. We say, well, I don't know about Deuteronomy. I'm just going to love people. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say you can either love or you can believe the Old Testament. No, what he says is if you believe the Old Testament, you will love. Love is the rubric through which we interpret the Bible. So it's not as though you either pick the Bible or you pick love. It is instead that when you pick the Bible, you have picked love. And if you don't come away loving, you didn't read it right. Go back and read it again. So when we look at Deuteronomy 25, which is our text today, you're going to see that it's actually a text all about love. It may not strike you that way because God is starting a nation 
with Israel. He's starting a nation. That means they actually have to have laws like every other nation has. When we read laws, for a lot of us, it's like, well, wow, I just want grace. But understand, grace only matters where there's law. Where there are no standards, grace is irrelevant. And so we read, let's start in verse 1, Deuteronomy 25, to see how we become our brother's keeper. Verse 1, when people have a dispute, they are to take it to court, and judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. I just remind you, justice is a form of love, right? Justice is a form of love. Like, if, if you don't love somebody, you have no reason to treat them fairly or justly. And so the whole text is going to be about Love. This is how you treat somebody. You treat them justly. You take them to court when you need to, and then the court has an obligation to exonerate the innocent and then to convict the guilty. Now, this is where it gets a little odd for us. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves, but the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. So I just want to stop and remind you again, prisons are terribly expensive and they were way too expensive for Bronze Age people. They could barely feed themselves. They had no hope of maintaining a prison system. So the way you dealt with crime, uh, certainly the, uh, you know, the, the lower class felonies and the, the misdemeanors, is you just smacked somebody. I mean, you had to do it legally and you had to do it with the court, but you just whooped them. And I, I don't want to go far afield here, but I do want to say, um, I have, I've never been in timeout. <laughs> never. I've never been in timeout. Like my dad didn't believe in timeout. He raised four boys and a girl. And he just learned early on that quick pain solves the problem. So we grew up being spanked with a belt. When daddy did, when mama did, she do it. She used a hairbrush and it. it <laughs> Honestly, I'm not making this up. I remember pretending to cry sometimes so my mom wouldn't feel bad after she spanked me. That's how lame it was. But when daddy spanked me, it was like a serious deal. And uh, you know what I appreciate about that? And by the way, daddy, you might be watching. Uh, this is true about my dad. I talked to him yesterday. He's, daddy's 84. And I talk, if, he's going to turn the TV off right now because when I talk about his spanking us as kids, he starts to cry. He can't believe he ever did it. And I have to remind him, dude, you know, think of the times you should have done it. You didn't. I mean, look at us. <laughs> Here's what he would do. He'd give us a spanking. He'd tell us, go, sit, go, to, go to bed after the spanking. It was always official. It was done in, a, in the right way. And then 10 minutes later, he'd come back and he'd sit on the side of the bed and he'd scoop us up. He, he did this to me a thousand times. Scoop me up in his arms, tickle me, laugh with me, and then say, let's go have some cake. Let's go, I got some cookies in here or something. I'm telling you, it was perfect for me. It was perfect for me. Because we dealt with the problem, we moved on, we were back to normal. And that's what's happening in this text. In fact, I want you to notice that verse 3 says, you can't degrade a person. Punishment's not about degrading people. It's actually a matter of reforming. It's a matter of restoring people to a good relationship. So that's what's happening in the text. It's odd for us to hear that somebody's getting whipped. But in my case, I would, I, I'm saying this honestly. I'd much rather get spanked than to be grounded for a week. I was never grounded. I've never been grounded. Daddy didn't do it. He just said, let's do it. We'll take care of it. We'll knock it out real fast. And then we'll get back to normal. And that's what's happening in this text. Now we have this odd verse here, verse 4. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. So 
we actually have a depiction of what this looks like from the time of Moses down in Egypt. What they would do is they, they bring in the stalks, the grain stalks, spread it out on the floor, and then you, you could use a threshing sled with a pull by a mule, or you could just have oxen walk across it. And as they walk across it, it separates the chaff and the grain. You throw it up in the air, the wind blows the chaff away, and the grain drops down, and now you've got something to make bread out of. So that's what's going on in the text. Interestingly, two different times in the New Testament, Paul quotes this verse, and he says, it's not really the oxen that God was concerned about. So here's one of those quotes, it's in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul doesn't take pay for being an apostle, and he says, but I had a right to do it. I could take a salary for being a preacher. That's what Paul's arguing in 1 Corinthians 9, but he says, I don't want to do that. That's why Paul had a second job, so that he wouldn't have to take salary. And in, in the justification of that, he says... The law of Moses says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it really the oxen that God is concerned with? Surely he says it for us. Paul is applying this to paying preachers, which maybe comparing oxen and preachers is not all that far afield. But what he says is, really what's going on in this text is God is saying, you got to take care of those who are taking care of you. Now, I just want to pause again because I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm really highlighting paying a preacher. I'm not. I've said it before, I don't mind saying it many times. The North Boulevard has been very generous, kind, and supportive of its ministry staff. We're taking really good care of. So I don't even want to talk about that, but what I want you to see is how Paul uses the Old Testament. Paul says, look, the most important thing in this text is not the ox. The most important thing in this text is the principle of you've got to take care of people who are providing for you. That's the point. And that's how the whole New Testament uses the Old Testament. That's why we keep saying the statute was temporary. But the eternal precept, it lives on. And the precept is you got to take care of people when they take care of you. All right, this is the heart of the text that I want to talk about. won't spend a lot of time on it, but I do want you to see that something really fascinating from where we are in the 21st century occurs in the next five verses, starting at verse 5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that the name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gates and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's family line. And that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Wow, what is going on there? The practice in Latin is known as levirate marriage, and it's actually a very common practice in clan-based cultures, so not just the Bible. Still practiced, still widely practiced in the world today in clan-based cultures. There are two things going on. First, in a culture of scarcity, if a man dies and leaves a widow who has no children, then she has nobody to provide for her. She's at risk of dying. So the first interest is the brother of the man who died has to take care of her. You know why? Anybody want to guess why? Because you are your brother's keeper. That's why. You're your brother's keeper. 
You have an obligation to your brother. And so the first interest is you got to take care of that widow. The second interest, when he goes into the widow, they have a child. And the child is named after the deceased brother. The second interest, don't let anybody's name die out among God's people. Don't let anybody's name die out. And, and I do remind you that in a clan-based culture, people don't think about individualism much. Your identity, so when we, in North America, if you want to know your identity, you know what you're told to do? Look deep inside. In most of the world, you know what you're told to do in order to figure out your identity? Look around. Who's your mom? Who's your dad? Who's your brother? Who's your sister? That's who you are. This book was written in that kind of culture. If you want to know who you are, look at your family. And so, what's being said is, preserve the name of this deceased brother. Now, a lot of problems come with this. I mean, just, you know, if you, if you can imagine, those of you who are married, you know, I'm not trying to get you to imagine the death of your spouse and all that. That's not my point. But I'm, you know, it'd be complicated. I'm, I got three brothers. The idea of marrying their wives is kind of a foreign idea to me, to be quite honest with you. It would compromise perhaps our inheritance. I can imagine Julie might not be really all that happy with me bringing in another wife. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of issues here. I'm just saying there are all kinds of issues. And the point of the text is, I don't care what the issues are. You are your brother's keeper. You do what's right. You're, you are family. When you're family, you take care of each other. You take care of each other when it's easy to do, and you take care of each other when it's hard to do. In fact, one of the only shaming moments in the book of Deuteronomy is this one. When a man refuses to take care of his own family, you spit in his face and call him a man of the unsandaled house. By the way, that's a, another bizarre thing to us, but in the Middle East, feet are uh, to show the bottom of your foot's flipping a bird at somebody. Y'all know what flipping a bird is? I just want you to know, I'm not going to do it, but I... I don't know what happened. Uh, is Russell McKissick up there? But something happened to this finger the last couple of weeks, and it will not bend. The middle one won't bend. I'm not joking. And so don't, like, try to shake my hand because it's going to end really badly if I shake this hand with you. Um, that's what taking a shoe off is in the Middle East. It's, it's flipping a bird at somebody. So what's being done in this text is you're going up and taking a sandal off. You're essentially flipping a bird at the guy. I mean, I'm not trying to be like, I hope that doesn't make you all mad. But here, come on. If that offends you, then you're really old. I'm just saying. You're <laughs> you might not have turned on TV in a couple of decades. Um, that's what's happening in the text. You take the sandal off, taking the sandal off. It's an insult. It's a way of saying, my goodness, you won't even take care of your own brother? You won't even take care of your own brother? Because the presumption of the text is what? Paul said it in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or, as it's found back in the book of Genesis chapter 4, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. By the way, that's pretty much what the rest of the text is about. And I'm going to move quickly through it. Verse 11, if two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by the private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Without going into a lot of detail, I'm just going to say this is a purity-preserving text. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. How about this one? 
Do not have two different weights in your bag, one heavy, one light. Do not have differing measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures. This is a matter of love. It's a matter of love. You can't mistreat people by giving them a cheated measurement. So that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. So coins weren't invented until a thousand years after Moses. That means when you did transactions or bartering, you had to measure out. So if you were dealing in copper, let's say, which is a common metal, bronze was a common metal. So bronze is mostly copper with a little tin added or maybe another, uh, uh, another form of metal. What you would do is you would have a little piece of it and you would measure it out. And if you were cheating people, you would have one measurement when you were buying and a different measurement when you were selling. And God says, I'm going to destroy the country if you do that. If you mistreat people like that, if you fail to love people enough to be honest with them. All right, we're going to finish the text and then we'll make an application. Remember the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. And here's the operative phrase about the Amalekites. This is what's worth remembering. They had no fear of God. That's why they get punished. They get punished because they have no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land, he is giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven and do not forget. So the Amalekites were scattered all over really, but they were in the southern part of, of the Sinai Peninsula. As the Israelites left Egypt and were heading down for Sinai, they were, cap they were confronted by an Amalekite army. These guys had just escaped centuries of slavery and suddenly they find themselves in the middle of a battle. By the way, these are, this is the mountain where it is presumed that Moses, remember, lifted his hands. As long as his hands were lifted, the Israelites won. And when his hands got tired, the Israelites started to lose. And so two individuals got beneath him and lifted his hands and held him up there so that the people of God would win. Well, God says, we're going to get rid of them because they have no fear of God. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I want to come back to the main theme, which is you are your brother's keeper. I just want to talk about that a few minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll make it quick. We are a family as a church. And as a family, we necessarily become the keepers of our brothers and sisters. And that's really hard for us to do. It's hard because, again, every age has its problems. We're not unique in having problems characteristic to our age, but some of our problems are unique. It's a really selfish generation. It really is. I'm selfish. Most of us are selfish. We like our privacy. You know, when we're done working, we don't want to be bothered anymore. We want people to leave us alone. Most of us would say, I've got all the problems I can deal with right now. I don't want somebody else's problems. I can barely keep up with my own problems. We build decks on the back of our house instead of porches on the front of our house. You know why? That way we don't have to talk to anybody. I just want you to know, when you become a member of God's family, you got to change that. You need someone who loves you. And I'll tell you something else. You need somebody whom you can love. You need people to love every bit as much as you need people to love you. Like we were created for love. God in the Trinity 
lives in communion of love. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit living in a communion of love. So when he creates us, he creates us in his image. That is, he creates us to live with others in a communion of love. And one of the sources of our unhappiness is that we're not following that mandate to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're not, we're not acting like our brother's keepers at times. When I think about what it would look like, what would it look like to be my brother's keeper? I go to Romans 12, my go-to text on so many things because it's a, such a powerful text. Just listen to the things that Paul says characterize people who understand that they are their brother's keepers. First, he says each member will belong to all the others. Notice he doesn't say you're a member of the church. He says instead you and I are members of each other. We belong to each other. So when you tell me it's none of my business what you're doing with your life, you're wrong. Everything you do in your life is my business because you belong to me. And everything I do in my life is your business because I belong to you. We're in this together. If we're not in this together, we will individually all sink. It's enough just the problems the world throws at us. I've been in a mixed racial group the last um, seven or eight weeks. It's the second one we've done. We actually we're going to keep doing this. It's a really big, good thing. But as, as we're sitting there, one of the black members just made the observation. She said this twice now, but the last time she said it, man, it just caught my attention. She just made the observation. She said, David, every problem you have as a white person in the U.S., I also have. But on top of that, I also have all the stuff that we blacks have to deal with. It's on top of everything else that you have. I mean, it makes my heart heavy to hear it. I believe her. And I want to say, and you know what's even worse? Is on top of all that, we've got the Christian responsibilities, and they're pretty hard too. If we don't have each other, I'm not sure we're going to make it. And for us to have each other, it's for us to acknowledge we belong to each other. None of us is solo. It also means we serve each other. We teach each other. See how fast we can go? It means that we encourage each other. It means that we give generously to each other. It means that we show mercy to each other, that our love is sincere, that we're devoted to one another, that we honor one another, that we share with one another, that we practice hospitality with each other. When you are happy, I'm happy. When you're sad, I'm sad. That's what it means. And in a big church like this, the only way to live as a family is to get small. So, I'm going to talk about small groups for a minute, but I don't want you to think I'm promoting North Boulevard's small group ministry. Like every time I talk about something like this, I feel like you're going to think, oh, he's throwing a commercial at us. When he's done, I'll pay attention again. I'm not selling anything. I want you to know you need a small group. North Boulevard doesn't need you in a small group. Like we're, it's a great church. If you don't join a small group, we're still going to be fine. I don't mean that ugly, but we are. We're doing pretty well. You're the one who needs it. It's not North Boulevard that needs it. You need it. Here's the deal. You can't love 3,000 people in any kind of meaningful way. You can be nice to them. But here's the truth. I don't even know half of your names. I mean, I really don't. I could see you at the store. You're going to look at me. I'm going to walk right past you and go wonder, why didn't he speak to me? I don't even know who you are. How do we love each other in that environment? And the only way to do it is for me to find a handful of people in whose life I can invest myself. 
And the way we do that is in small groups. So I've been asking, what's the best way to talk about small groups? And I came up with this idea, and I did it at first service, and it really just totally bombed. And I had to teach a class between first and second, so I didn't get a chance to rewrite it. So y'all do me a favor, laugh, look, you know, clap a few, a couple of times, kick back and say, well, isn't it great? I've never heard anything like this. Love me. Love me for a minute. Here's how I decided to come up with it. Here are 10 ways to build an uninspiring small group. You know why I'm doing this? Because a lot of us join a small group and it doesn't do a lot for us. I'm going to show you why. Number 10, stay fuzzy about who your leader is. Here's the deal. If you're in a small group and nobody knows where you're going, odds are it's going to be an uninspiring small group. It's okay to start. It's okay to be in first grade. It's okay to start without a designated leader. That's okay. But at some point, somebody needs to say, let's go. So some of you, you'll leave a group because you were sick and nobody seemed to pay attention. You know what the problem was? You don't have a pastor in your group. Everybody's business is nobody's business. So sometimes we just need to say, okay, let's go someplace. We need somebody who will take us there. Number nine. Just laugh for a second, and if you don't mind, look like you're really enjoying this. Goodness, I'm not a dentist. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, like this is the look that I see in dental chairs when I walk in. Uh, Okay, do not make a rock-solid commitment to each other. That way you never have to care. So if you're in a small group, a year has gone by, and you still don't know the names of the people in your group, up your game a little bit. Number eight. Refuse to get involved in real issues of each other's lives. That way you're not burdened. I'm going to say this. If your small group is still just like giving platitudes, you know, that reminds me of God. He's so great. If that's the most you ever get, break past the platitudes. Get into people's real lives. The guys who are sitting there in your group are really dealing with real stuff. Like get to the real stuff. Number seven. Thank you. Make your uh, group a Bible study or a pie tasting group. Now, you should laugh at that and say, that was so good. That would help me a lot. Um, Thank you. That way you don't have to become a real family. So I just want to make sure you understand. Studying the Bible is not the purpose of your small group. Everybody with me? You You don't need a Bible study. You need to be a disciple. The Bible is only a tool to make you a disciple. If you study the Bible and you don't become a disciple, you wasted your time. In fact, you did worse than that. Because James says if you hear the word and you don't do it, well, you're a terrible person. The whole point of the group is for you to become a disciple of Jesus, not to become a Greek or Hebrew scholar. We got plenty of Greek-speaking people. If you go to Greece today, there are 15 million people who speak Greek. Like the world's got a lot of them. What we need are disciples. Okay, number six, avoid all conflict. And that way you can keep saying you're fine when people ask you how you're doing. The day your small group has its first conflict is the day you actually started to mature. That's the first day you started to mature. Because healthy conflict helps us to grow. And if you quit your small group because they had a little conflict, boy, you need a small group. Number five, never challenge one another to maturity. That way you don't have to take any risks. I'm just saying sometimes you might need to say to folks, hey, I see a growth area and I want to help you with it. We're family. We are our brother's keeper. We marry the widows of our brother's at least in the Bronze Age. Hold nobody accountable so that everybody will like you. And then this one. 
And I just want to say, nothing will kill a small group like having the answer man. And most groups have one, right? And, and you know who they are? They're the people not laughing right now because they don't realize that they're the answer man. This is the guy who answers every question. And normally he can quote the book, chapter and verse, and he can tell you a Greek word. The Greek word for itch is itch, and it means itch. That's what he can do. I just want to make sure you understand, that's why you need a leader. You need a leader who can say occasionally, thank you, answer man. Alice, what do you think about this? <laughs> or, in extreme cases, take answer man out and say, man, nobody knows Greek and Hebrew like you do. Maybe you could not share it as much in our next meeting. <laughs> just talk to them, seriously. It kills a small group sometimes when like the same guy just keeps answering. And I promise you, he doesn't know he's doing it. He's not trying to be evil. He doesn't know he's doing it or she. Number two, disregard structure so that you can boogie all night. I, I want you to know, it took me a week to come up with that sentence right there. If your small group goes until like 11.30 p.m., you don't realize that somebody is thinking about quitting because that's more than they want it. Like you can be your brother's keeper and not stay up all night with them. So bring a little structure in your small group and it will help your group become inspirational. Here's my last one. If you want an uninspiring small group, don't join one. And then when you leave, send me an email telling me that you never felt connected at North Boulevard. That'll help. So at the end of the day, you are your brother's keeper. A church of 3,000 people, you're, you will never even know all the names of people at North Boulevard. But if you find 12 or 15 or 20, or in some of your cases, it's 35 or 40 people in a small group, and you invest your life in them, even if it's for a year. By the way, it's okay just to have a group that meets for a year. My group, we're only on a year commitment. It's a young married group. Two of us, so Julie and I and the McCreary started the group. We said to the young folks that we invited, we said, look, we're going to give you a year. We're going to find a leader, raise you up give birth to you, and then we're going to go do it again. And we may do that every year for a while. But for this year, you're my family. For this year, you're my family. We're together for this year. Y'all know the power of being your brother's keeper? So we talk about, uh, oh, I want to do this. Let me do this real quickly, and then I'm going to end my sermon. I want to ask you, those of you who are leading small groups, even if you're not leading small groups, I want raise, bring this up. Answer man, make sure you bring this up to your group leader. Next time you meet, say, hey, you remember that thing David said? We ought to do it. I want to help you take a steroid shot for your small group. So Bobby Harrington has written this uh, free ebook. You can get it at renew.org. And what I'm asking you to do is download the ebook. Easy to do. It'll take you two minutes. Download the ebook and go to the middle section, which is a section that gives you a spiritual, autobiog spiritual autobiographical exercise. Do it. Every small group, do it. Just do it. You don't have to watch my video, set the video aside. Just do it. Just see what happens. It will put a steroid shot into your small group. It's free. It's easy. But you'll discover all sorts of things that you needed to know that will give your small group the love that it needs. So we all do it? It's a good time. Just say yes, even if you don't mean it, say yes. Thank you. Now I'm going to end. We, we, do, we preach on disciple making, church planting, and these are the right things because these are our mission, but they're not our motive. Right? That's not our motive. Our motive is not disciple making. Our motive is simple. <laughs> our motive is love. Like we care. That's why we do what we do. 
our motive is love. So I have to be really careful how I say this story. I just want to be really careful. I have an acquaintance. We're not quite friends, but we would be. We just don't get a chance to interact much. I'm going to call him Brandon. By the time Brandon was five or six years old, he was experiencing gender dysphoria. Now, I'm going to let you assume the rest of that story, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to let you assume it, and you're probably assuming right. Brandon didn't go to church, didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about God. Graduated college, was having a pretty decent life, but he knew there was something missing in his life. He had only been to church, I think he said twice in his whole life, a Christmas Eve, somebody took him. But he was in college, he remembered this, he was an accountant, he was in college with someone who went to the Orlando Church of Christ. And so he decided, okay, I need to go to church and see if there's something there that I had been missing because he knew something was missing in his life. He said, I hadn't been to church. I didn't know who these people were. I, that, I just knew the name. That's all I knew was the name. He said, for all I knew when I walked in in high hills, there was going to be fire coming down from heaven and roast me right there. I didn't know what to expect. He tells his testimony, by the way, he speaks nationally. It's a, it's a fantastic story. He said, but when I walked in, everybody was so friendly to me. I didn't expect that. And then one of the women invited him to a women's small group. And yes, it's as weird as you think. Now, he tells the story. He goes to this women's small group for months. And everybody knew what was going on, but they just loved him. They just kept loving him. And at some point, Brandon said I, to the, the leader of this women's small group, I need to talk to you about something. And she said, okay, let me get a man. Let's talk together. And in 2009, at the Orlando Church of Christ, Brandon was baptized into Jesus Christ. And upon his baptism, he instantly began to share his story with others to tell them the power of Twitter. No, or the power of Facebook, the power of attacking your political enemies. That's not the story he tells. The story he tells is the power of love. When I walked into that group, they loved me. And that's what I needed. And that's what you need. That's what this text is about. It's about loving your brother enough to care for his widow and to care for his legacy. At North Boulevard, you do that through small groups. In fact, that's really how you do it everywhere. It's just we have an official program for it. So my challenge to you is this. Find the love to which God has called you. Become your brother's keeper. And if we can help you do that, you contact the office. Go online. There are buttons you can push online that will take you right to our small group page. Find a small group and find love. Let's think about it. Let's stand up.